0: It is indeed a privilege uh, to open the word of God that we can enjoy um, in our own languages and in multiple copies. Some will even carry them in our pockets. We sometimes forget the fact that this word of God is drenched in blood. It came through the ages, through a suffering of a lot of saints, and now we have them to open and to enjoy it as God intends us to hear his word. What a privilege that we live in. <clears throat> if you read across 2 Corinthians, one of the things that you will notice is that there is not, there is not a lot of doctrine in 2 Corinthians, but there is a lot of practical and real life experience that the Apostle Paul was going through. It's one of those uh, letters that are very personal uh, on Paul's life experiences. And they're very touching in a way. By this time, the Apostle has suffered a lot, a great deal. I mean, he will touch on them in chapter 12, uh, in chapter 12, and also in chapter 4, but he only just glosses over them. And you can see by this time, when when you read it, try and read it alone, and try and read it side by side with the book of Acts, to try and really get into the circumstances under which the apostle is writing in. He is being attacked left, right, and center. You know, when you read Galatians, at the end of Galatians, you know, he says a very profound statement, and he says something to the effect of, you know, from now on, just leave me alone, because I bear the marks of the Lord in my body. He's almost saying, I have endured so much, but I don't want to talk about it. Because the life that I am, what I bear in my body, the sufferings that I've gone through, they speak for themselves. You can almost feel the love, the selflessness, and also the pain, and also the joy at the same time. Of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is one of those people that, whenever I read across the Bible, the things that he goes through, if ever there was evidence of what real, true Christianity is, if ever there was evidence of God, if anybody can ask you there is no evidence of God, I would say go and read about the man Apostle Paul. He is a man, he was a man like all of us. And worse in some extent. But by the power of God, by the transformative power of God, he became a torch bearer in a way that now that he is at is in heaven at home, we can all look at and say, wow. What a servant of God. And whenever I read passages such as this, I just wish I could be just a quarter of what the Apostle Paul was. But I know that even that is too much to ask of me. So as we read, we go through Second Corinthians, I hope you are going to be impacted by these real experiences of this man of God that he's going to share with us. My passage is from verse 5 to verse 11 of chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. But for the sake of context, I am going to start from first from chapter 1, verse 23. I will not comment on the verses that have already been taken care of by the brother other brothers before me, but for continuity here, I will start from verse 23 of uh, chapter 1. Moreover, I call God, for a reckon upon my soul, that to spare you I came not as yet unto Corinth. Not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith you stand. But I determined this with myself, that I will not come again to you in heaviness. For if I make you sorrow, who is he then that maketh me glad? but the same which is made sorrow by me. I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many. So that contrariwise you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also I did write that I might know the proof of you, whether you be obedient in all things. To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And as always, we trust that the Lord will bless the public reading of his word. Now, I am going to read from the amplified version to bring clearer what he means in verse five. When you read, especially from King James, it's not very clear what he's talking about, but the amplified version will really bring a context to this. But if someone, the one among you who committed incest has has caused all this grief and pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, he has distressed all of you. Now, if you remember in 1 Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 12, I believe, uh, when uh, the subject of the body was introduced to us, we were taught here how it is that As a body of Christ, as an organism of Christ, our unity is so profound that we cannot afford to be without each other. We are not independent of each other in in the sense that we need each other in order for us to operate as an organization, as an organism. Now, in the world... If you are part of an organization, their interest in only insofar as it serves the organization. If you've been reading the news lately, Elon Musk is firing everybody left, right, and center, right? When he took over Twitter, he realized that he was not happy with what the board's decisions were. And what did he do? He got rid of them. And he fired more than half of the staff. Now, his obligation to all those people that he has let go ended right there. Now, we don't know what the circumstances of those people were. Some of those people might have had medical bills, which they had to pay. Some of those people might have have had mortgages, which they had to pay. Some people might have had debts, which they wanted to clear. But as far as Elon Musk, as far as Twitter is concerned, his interest with those people ended right there. What happens to them after that is none of his business and he doesn't care. That's how the world deals with membership to an organization. But what we see here, what the Apostle Paul is going to bring us, is something that is very personal, that is a lesson for us to take at heart. This takes over from what the apostle had, taught, had talked about in 1 Corinthians, if you remember in chapter 5, when there was an incident of incest in, within an assembly. And in that assembly, he spoke very strongly to deal with that issue very decisively and very firmly. And now when we get to this chapter, you would think if you were I, if, the, if we were an organization, if the church was an organization like the world is, we would have said this man has not saved well for the purposes of the organization. Let's get rid of them. We would be the Elon Muskies that would just be too glad to get rid of people like that. Let's get rid of them. And once we've gotten rid of them, let's move on. Life goes on because the organization is what is important. But this is not so in the church of God. For those that become part of the body of Christ, our interest is forever with each other. My care for you and your care for me will not end even if I live gathered. And more so, as a local assemble, our care for one another is enduring to the end until we go home. So what we see here when we come to this passage, the Apostle Paul now brings the aspect of this subject of sin that had happened in the assembly, but now he had received information, he had now received news that when the church at Corinth, they received the letter of the apostle Paul on this incident, they acted promptly and dealt with the issue. This is an issue of assembly discipline. Now, this is one aspect that in modern day Christendom is now neglected. Assemble discipline, when there is sin in a church, is just swept under the carpet. Now, I'm not being judgmental here, but I know that I have been to assemblies where I come from in my history. I have been to assemblies where you can see an assembly is full of young women with children without fathers. Now, we open the door, praise God be to them, if they walked in with those babies, without fathers, and then they got converted and then they got saved. Hallelujah. We praise the Lord for that. But when young people come into the assembly, unfortunately this manifests in, in, in the sisters, but equally with behind that is a lot of so-called brothers that will be involved in those things. But when a young, young people come to an assembly and there is a manifestation of things like that, babies within an assembly that are out of wedlock, and it is not an issue within an assembly, there is a problem. It is indeed also a true in Christendom nowadays that you see all manner of things that are happening within the assembly, but the assembly does nothing. Church discipline is a biblical principle. It is not about the elders or the leaders of the church trying to be burdensome over an assembly, the flock of God, but it is carrying out the duty that God has given in local churches so that so that we don't get rid of you the whole idea of church discipline is not so that we can weed out those people that we want to check out that is not the spirit the idea of church discipline is so that we want to be like Christ We want the world when they look at us, when they look at our lives, and they can say, Surely God is amongst you. That is our objective. We want people, when they see us, they see the reflection of Christ that is in us. When we fall short on those terms, it is the responsibility of us, of members of the assembly, to come to each other's side and help one another to bring back on course. That's the whole idea of church discipline, so that we can bring people back on course so that we can continue together in this journey that we are on. So here at this instance, the apostle Paul is then speaking to the assembly at Corinth and he says to them, I know what has happened amongst you. And he says to them, this person that did this thing, not only Is he grieving me? But I know that he has grieved you also. What is the apostle saying here? Our conduct individually has an effect in all of us. If a brother or a sister falls short We don't say, oh, I am doing well. I didn't do that. Well, that's his or her problem. Oh, phew, praise the Lord, it wasn't me. That is not the attitude. When we care, the idea of being a body in a local assembly is that we care about each other so much that when a brother or a sister backslides When they fall short, when they stumble, it grieves us. Do we feel pain when a brother or a sister stumbles? Because if we don't, may the Lord help us. Because we need to be taught again. We need to feel that pain. This is much further than just crying with those that cry and rejoicing with those that rejoice. We can cry with people that are in the world, by the way. We can do that. We can sympathize with people that are in the world. We can also rejoice with people that are in the world. That is what Romans is teaching there. But here we are coming close to home and we are saying more than just crying with those that cry and rejoicing with those that rejoice. When one of us has been taken over by sin... It is not their sin this not their sin that is only independent and is exclusive of us We feel the pain of the consequence of that sin as an assembly How do I make you make you happy How do I make you rejoice I can make you happy I can make you rejoice when I prosper in the Lord. How do you feel when you visit a brother and a sister and you find them at home they are reading scripture? How does that make you feel, dear believer? I will tell you what that makes me feel. It makes me rejoice. I'm not the one who is reading the scripture. But it's another believer, it's a fellow brother and sister. He or she is investing time in those things that God wants, to, to, wants us to invest in. And what do we do? We rejoice. I see it. I, I pick up my phone, I try to call you, and, I, and you can't pick up my phone. And then you phone me later on and say, oh, sorry to do this. I didn't pick up my phone. I was witnessing to so and so. Do you know what, how that makes me feel? It makes my heart leap enjoy. But when I pick up the phone to call you and you can't pick up my phone and then I learn later on that you couldn't pick up my phone because you were involved in something that you're not supposed to be involved in. How does that make me feel? It makes me sad. It makes me sad. So the Apostle Paul, this is what he's talking about, saying, I know This thing that has happened in the assembly, it has not only grieved me. The apostle Paul had responsibility over many assemblies. But this is the heart of a tender, loving shepherd. He says, I am grieved too. It might be the case that the church in Jerusalem are doing very well. But this thing that is happening in Corinth, it is grieving me too and i know also that it has grieved you as well now he turns to the man and he sort of the apostle paul in 1st corinthians chapter 5 he speaks to the assembly to take action against this Sin. That has happened in assembly. But here now we see the Apostle Paul now almost pleading on behalf of the assembly. Now if I say to you, what is the chapter of love in scripture? You probably without hesitation will say First Corinthians 13, isn't it? That is the chapter of love. But I will submit that this particular passage, verses 5 to 11, they can also be labeled the chapter of love. Because in this instance, the Apostle Paul now he pleads on behalf of this believer who has been overtaken by a sin. And he says to them, To such a man, sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many. Now, what we see here is that this was not just a decision of one person. This discipline was not a decision of one man, but this was a collective agreed decision. Now, I'm not talking about democracy here, but this was the agreed Position of the assembly. The assembly agreed that we cannot have this sin go unnoticed. We cannot have this sin be swept under the carpet. So it is not just the elders here that decide these things. It is the desire and the wish and the one voice of the assembly that in our desire to preserve this bride of Christ, to be as pure as we can... We agree as an assembly to take disciplinary action on this man. So it was not just a one-person decision. It should be the, the position of the local assembly that sin is not something that we can entertain. Sin is not something that we can delight in as an assembly. Sin is something that we should be willing to deal with, not because we want to hate one another, but because of love. Contrarywise, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. He'll touch on this as well uh, in, 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 in verse 11. How do we respond? Without a doubt, this man has seen the errors of his way. And what did, you do? what did you do? Now, there are two ways. When we are being corrected because we have fallen short or we are in error in a particular area, there are two ways in which we can respond. We can throw a tantrum and kick everything that is around us and the cat and bolt out. That is a sure sign that somebody has not repented when somebody is being shown by the assembly that they are in error in their conduct in their life and they throw a tantrum, when a sister comes to a brother and says, brother, I, I, I think I see something here, it's not because they hate you. It's not because they are being holier than thou. We are often being accused of that. It's not because they're being holier than thou. It's because they care about you. And when they show you that issue, how do you respond to it? It might be just a genuine misunderstanding. Maybe they saw you walking out of, a, I don't know, a place that we normally wouldn't go to, and somebody saw you, and then they ask you. Okay. It might be a genuine uh, misperception in the sense that maybe you had gone in to take somebody that you were supposed to, whatever, there was a legitimate reason that you had to be there, but if indeed the issue is real, that indeed you have been found in a circumstance that you are not supposed to be in, How do we respond? I will tell you what a response of a repentant person is. They will submit to the advice and they will take corrective action to deal with that issue. And no doubt it seems this is what has happened in Corinth. This man had corrected his ways and repented from his sin. Now when somebody has repented of their sin, What is our responsibility to them? We can wound and hurt each other when we keep on bringing up the same things that happened again and again and again and again. When a person has repented of those things, Because we know that a sister had a baby out of wedlock. They have repented and they've been magnificently saved and they now come to be part of an assembly. But every time they walk through the door with that baby, how do we look at them? I know this from experience. Judgmental looks. But these people have repented. They are now in good relationship with God, what is our responsibility to them? We should love them. Our arms should be stretched out and open to embrace them and confirm our love to them. What does it mean to confirm your love to them? It's not just telling them that you love them, but it is making them feel that they are indeed loved. It's one thing to tell somebody that you love them, but it's another thing for the other person to say, that person loves me. Verse 10 To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. What right do we have as believers to hold out a grudge against those whom God has forgiven? How do we continue to point a finger against them whom God says not guilty? how dare we do we continue to whisper in our homes over sins of brothers and sisters whom God has now forgiven. The tender heart of the apostle Paul says to them, I trust you that you have handled this issue and you have forgiven this man. And if you have forgiven him, I forgive that person also. Not only for this incident, but I say to you, in any situation, if you forgive anyone, I will forgive them also. Why? I forgive them in the person of Christ. Now, I can almost see tears in the eyes of the apostle as he communicates these things. Remember, the apostle here is being accused of all manner of things. He has authority, he knows that he has authority that he has been given by the Lord to really. to order things in the churches. But he doesn't. And instead, his eyes are very focused on his master who has appointed him to, his job, to this role. And he says, if you are going to forgive this, if you have forgiven this, I, too, do forgive it. I know that I am being attacked, left, right, and center. Within your own assembly, there are people that are saying, I am fickle. There are people that are saying, when I mean to do this, I don't do it. I am unreliable. I am undependable. But you tell you what, I will not hold any of this against you. For the sake of Christ... If you are happy, I am happy. If you forgive this, I too forgive this person because of Christ. Now, verse 11, and then we'll close. Lest Satan should get an advantage over us, for we are not ignorant of his devices One of the things that the devil does in a believer's life is to remind them of their sins. He's very good at that. He's very good at that. I can tell you that with more than 20 years of experience. He is very good at that. Sadly, if we're going to come and hit things home a little bit, there are many that have taken their lives because of guilt. Guilt can destroy us. We should not forget who we were, that is true. Because if we forget what sort of people we were that God saved us from, we will lose to appreciate the value of the cross. But equally, we cannot live in the past and constantly reminding ourselves and live in the wallow of self-pity. You know, the Apostle Paul in First Corinthians he says, I am the least of all apostles. I am not even meet to be called an apostle. I persecuted the church of Christ. But I toil more than the rest of them. The the. In other words, he didn't allow the fact that he was the worst of the worst of people to hinder him, to hold him back, to achieve his full usefulness for Christ. He pressed on. When you have fallen and you have been overtaken by sin, dear saint of God, repent of that sin and refuse to live in the wallow of self-pity of that sin. When God forgives us, he doesn't forgive us in part. He doesn't forgive us conditionally. When God forgives us, he forgives us totally and completely. The enemy's device is to constantly drag us back and pull us back. And indeed, people have taken their lives because of that. but we know the God that we save who did not spare his only son for us. When he forgives us, he cleanses us completely. The liberty that comes with that knowledge in your worship to God is priceless. This crystallized to me years ago And I understood that the God that I save is not a tyrant. The God that I save is not an accuser. The only person who is an accuser is Satan. The God that I save when I come before him and confess my sins is a God who afterwards, if the enemy comes, he says, what are you talking about? I have no record Of what you are talking about. I have no idea. The deduzi that you are talking about. I don't know this person. Because my son died for him. When I see him. Are you trying to tell me that my son is imperfect? Are you trying to tell me that the work that he did on the cross. Was not sufficient to cleanse deduzi. No, we should refuse. We are the forgiven ones. We have been set free from guilt. Our record has been erased. We are liberated to live and worship God and to please him for the rest of our lives here on earth. No enemy should whisper in our ears and remind us of how awful a people were. We know what God saved us, but praise be to his name, and we are thankful for the cross. Because of the cross, we know that those things are now history. I don't know how this man who committed this sin felt after reading this passage of scripture. But if I were him, I would feel very loved. I would feel accepted. I would feel as part of the body at Corinth. It is my prayer and my hope that as we go through Corinthians and we see these intimate very personal experiences of the Apostle Paul as he enumerates these things. In chapter 4, he lists a lot of things, the sufferings, and he doesn't point them out as his own sufferings. He uses the word we, 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 because he doesn't want to bring the attention just to himself. But you can see that these are the experiences that he himself went through. I hope we will identify in the message of scripture that tells us how we ought to live in this life and then we can understand as a local assembly how it is that our individual personal lives are so intertwined with one another that we we'll realize that we have an eternal stake in each other. I hope these simple things will encourage you and hope, uh, hope you grow in the things of the Lord. Let us pray. Our precious Lord and our good Savior, we know that we are inadequate people. We know that, Lord, we have failed in our lives, but praise be to your name. We are very thankful, O Lord, that there is forgiveness in God.